All right, well, if you guys have your Bibles tonight, why don't you take your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 3. Um, Acts chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26 here this evening as we continue in our study of the book of Acts. Well, if you were here last week, hopefully you remember that we talked about the lame beggar um, that Peter and John met at the entrance of the temple. And if you kind of remember how it went, Peter and John were, were coming there to pray uh, in the afternoon, and this beggar um, who was collecting alms or uh, essentially looking for charity from the people because he couldn't support himself, uh, when Peter and John approached, the man approached them and asked them for money, but Peter's reply was simply that he didn't have any silver or gold. However, he did have something that was far better. And, and he looked down at the man, and he, and he took him by the hand and said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And, and instantly the man, it says, his, his feet and ankles were healed, and he, and, he, and he stood up. And the next scene we see was that he was jumping up and down and, and just praising the Lord. And, and we see that Peter and John were in the temple, and this man was just grasping onto him. And, and, and the people in the temple recognized that this was the lame beggar who had just been sitting lame there by the the temple gate and they'd probably seen him for weeks and even years that same man and yet now he was jumping up and down clearly walking and they were absolutely astounded by it now what we're going to see here tonight in verses 12 through 26 is peter's response we're going to see he, he took this opportunity where these people were just in awe of what just happened and, and he took his opportunity to to give them a message um, from the Lord really just uh, just some words of um, that would have no doubt convicted these people many of them um, and as we're going to see even next week enraged others based on what he said and that's kind of what we're going to be looking at here um, tonight so let's go ahead and read our verses, and then we will dig into it. Starting in verse 12 of Acts chapter 3. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this and why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away, and then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. And starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, Through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful 
ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, just so much for your word and just the, the instruction that comes from it, Lord God, even as we hear these stories, Lord, of, of what you did when your church began way back there in, in the first century, as we see just the, this church begin to explode, and, and Peter and John, the apostles, just are so, are so bold in their faith. Lord, just let us glean from it. I pray we'd be encouraged and challenged by it tonight, Father. Lord, whatever it is in our lives that, that we need to have um, maybe fixed, healed, removed, well, I don't know, Lord God, you know us. You know the struggles we deal with, God. You know the hang-ups that we each have, Father. And, and I just pray that whatever it is tonight, God, that you would speak this to, it, to us as individuals. And God, you would just um, let us all leave here one, one step closer to Christ, Lord, than when we came in. Lord, I just pray that you would receive all the honor and glory in this place tonight, Father. Let my, let my lips just be a tool in your hands, God, just be to, and just to speak to your people, to speak to me tonight, Lord, and, and just receive glory through it all. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, as we get into this, um, there, there's a few little small nuggets that I really liked in here, and then kind of one big over, overarching one we're going to look at as we kind of get to, toward the end of the chapter here. But, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me um, here in verse 12 was this idea that Peter saw his opportunity and he addressed the crowd. Like Peter and John, I was thinking, just put yourself in their shoes, right? I mean, the, the turmoil of, of kind of the day with the Romans and the, and the priests and the religious leaders and everything. I mean, when these people came to him and like, we know there were thousands because there was, we're going to see next week, 2,000 were just men, not including the women and children that were saved. So there were literally thousands of people here, including them, the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were present here. When this crowd came, they could have been like, um, uh-oh, we better just go back home and pray so we don't stir up any trouble. And yet they didn't. Like, instead, they just took this opportunity that God gave them, and they spoke out boldly to these people. And I was just thinking about that, how we need to be ready and willing to act when God gives us opportunities um, to do his work. You know, last week I closed a sermon with this challenge where I, I talked about how we need to be praying that God would give us his eyes to see, you know, that he would allow us to not be so distracted by the things going on in our lives that we miss the opportunities that he places in front of us. And this really is a, such an important part of our Christian walk. Um, but it's, it's not just seeing the opportunities. We also need to be praying for boldness to act when they come. Whether it's doing something, whether it's speaking to somebody, or whatever that looks like, or speaking up, I, I, whatever that looks like, we need to be ready, we need to be bold enough to actually step out and act um, when, when God gives us opportunities, regardless of what we might think the outcome is. We need to overcome that fear and trust in the Lord that when he, when he shows us something, boy, that's a divine moment, a divine opportunity, a divine appointment that he's given us, and we need to step out and trust him in those moments. Now, if we move on to verse 12 here, this is also something, also something that really stuck out to me. He says, people of Israel, what is so surprising about this? Now, you may look at that and go, well, isn't it obvious? A lame man was just healed. Now he's standing up, jumping up and down, right? I mean, he's been lame for over 40 years, and wouldn't you be surprised? And, and yet, think about the fact that it wasn't just maybe two or three months before this that Lazarus, a man who was dead for four days, walks out of the tomb alive. And probably many of these people were witnesses of that, at least knew about it, because they were living there in Jerusalem. And this happened right there, you know, down the road in Bethany. And, and so, I mean, in Peter's mind, he's like, what's the big deal? Jesus made blind people see, lame people walk, cast out demons, made dead people walk out of the grave. I mean, what's the big deal if somebody 
that was lame is now walking. And you know what, what really stuck out to me about that was this. What if that happened here? Like, what if some lame man come walking in and the Lord put it on one of our hearts to pray for them and that man stepped up out of his wheelchair and began walking? Do you think that we would be absolutely flabbergasted by that? I think I probably would, but as I was thinking about that, like, uh, why would we be flabbergasted by that? You know, I mean, because here's the reality. Like, I think all of us in here that I look around would agree that, that God's still powerful, that his power hasn't diminished. I think we would all agree that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and if he wants to do miracles, he has the authority to, to do that. And, and yet, why isn't it? I mean, has God's power been diminished somehow that he can no longer do things like this? I mean, obviously not. God is powerful as he's ever been. So, or, or maybe did, did Peter and John have some extra supernatural gift from the Holy Spirit to do what they did? And some might say maybe, except if you look down at the latter part of verse 12 here, that this was a response. He says, why, why are you staring at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or our own godliness? I mean, the, even Peter and John were like, this wasn't us. This was God. Now, how did it happen? Was it just some supernatural gifting they were given? I mean, obviously the Spirit of God worked through them, but how did the Spirit of God work through them? If you look down at verse 16, look what that says in verse 16. Through what? Through what? So somebody yelled out, faith. It says, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. So there was two acts of faith. Peter and John acted in faith by saying what? Stand up and be healed. Remember last week we talked about how sometimes some with greater faith need to help those with smaller faith? But what did Jesus say about even small faith? If you have the faith the size of a what? A mustard seed. You can say to this mountain, go from here to here and throw yourself into the sea and it'll go. And so John, in faith, or Peter, in faith, reached down and says, stand up and walk. And in faith, that man grabbed his hand and he stood up. And so it was by faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that this man was clearly healed. And so my question is this. If God is the same today, is if his power has not changed, then why don't we see more of this thing still today in our world? One option, I was thinking there's really only a couple options, and one option is this, like, God's just not in the business of doing miracles anymore like this. I don't know about you, but I just don't think that one's it. That, that one just don't settle with me very well, that God's just no longer in the business of doing miracles. But here's option two. Is option two maybe because people, especially here in a country so prosperous where we have very few problems and it's very easy to be a Christian and become a complacent Christian, could it be that maybe there's just a lack of faith and a lack of expectancy for God to do these things? Like, is it really that God's no longer in the business of, mir the business of miracles like this? Or is it that his people today simply lack the faith to believe that he can still do those things? I mean, the fact that we'd probably be shocked like this if something happened tells me that, that we've in some ways just lost sight of how powerful he is. I don't know about you, because the stories that I hear on articles is that God is moving like this in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East. Crazy miracles. 
you hear testimony of. So it's not that God's no longer in the business of miracles. Maybe it's just that we need to seek him more diligently. Maybe it's we need to be fasting and praying. We need to be on our knees pleading with God and building our relationship, making sure that all sin is out of our life and we're walking in righteousness because the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James chapter 5 tells us, right? And so maybe there's just something to, to learn and heal in here that it's just this idea that, man, maybe we need to go on another level. And if we did that, boy, what could God do? Could we see God work like this? in our nation again? Could we see that God work like this even right here in this church again? I'm not sure about you, but I'm not going to put anything past God. Now, just a caveat, will God heal every person with a ailment? No. I mean, the Bible is clear about the, the fact that sometimes God's will is for people's faith to be strengthened through trial and tribulation. You know, um, some of the strongest faith there is is being able to walk through trials Somebody that, in spite of the fact that they're not healed, can say, I'm still trusting in my God. He works all things for good according to his purposes, right? I mean, it's, that's some of the strongest faith that there is. It's not always, but we have to believe that if we are in tune with the Spirit of God as Peter and John were, I believe God at times will direct us to lead us in ways maybe even just like this. Now, you will notice this too, that this whole thing wasn't like just some random idea that Peter and John had. It wasn't like they were in their um, house eating lunch and go, you know what? Hey, John, what do you think? Let's go, let's go find somebody to heal. Is that what it says? No. They were just going to pray. And God led them in that moment focused their eyes on this man, and it was a divine appointment that God opened the door for. Because they were men of prayer, they were walking with the Lord, and God opened their eyes to this, and then this was the result. And I, I don't know about you, that just challenged me this week to, for us just to walk as closely to God as we can and just never usher, underestimate His power. But we have to believe that God is still powerful. We have to be walking in righteousness, trusting in Him. Now, as we get back to our text, we're going to get back to maybe probably the bigger point of this whole thing. Um, verse 13, it says this. Peter says, For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors. And I'm going to stop there for a second. Peter is making a very Jewish point here. Understand that his audience were totally Jew. It was completely Israelite at this moment. And so when he said Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he was, he was looking at these people and saying, the fathers of your faith, Right? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that God, the God you guys worship and serve, look in verse 13, the second part of it, who has what? Brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. And so Peter's saying this amongst all these Jews, in front of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, everybody that's there in the temple, and he's like, look, your God, the God of Israel, is confirming that this Jesus is your Messiah. That's exactly what he was saying to these people. And when he said this, this phrase, his servant, it was a very pointed description that was given to the Messiah in the Old Testament. I'm going to read just a couple of passages of Scripture just to kind of show you what I mean. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1, it says, Look at my servant, whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. 
That was clearly speaking of the Messiah to come. In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 through 7, this one's even more poignant. He says, and, and now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in, mother, in my mother's womb to be his servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me and my God has given me strength. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says to the one who is despised, and rejected by the nations to the one who is the servant of rulers. Kings will stand at attention when you pass by. Princes will also bow low because of the Lord, the faithful one, the holy one of Israel who has chosen you. I mean, does that sound at all like a messianic verse? So, so when Peter says this, this phrase, his servant, Jesus, he was, put yourself in a mindset of a Jew. You're saying Jesus was clearly the Messiah. Now the question is, is what did these people do to this chosen servant? What did they do to their Messiah and Savior that God sent to them? Well, Peter begins to lay the charges out here in verse 13. He says, this is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release them. And so Peter was reminding these people all over again that, look, Pilate tried over and over and over to tell you all that this man Jesus was completely innocent. And in fact, there were six recorded times in the Gospels. In Luke's and John's Gospels were six different times that Pilate tried to tell these people, this man's innocent. What are you doing? So much so that when he finally released him, he went and washed his hands. This blood's on you. I want nothing to do with it. And, and yet they still chose to crucify Jesus. And then verse 14, you rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. What was he talking about here? One of Pilate's ways that he was trying to get these people convinced that Jesus was innocent and to try to change, them, to change their mind was this. He brought out this notorious murderer named Barabbas. And he looked out at the crowd and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a choice. We can either let Jesus go, you know, the one that casts out demons and heals people and raises people from the dead, that guy, or we're going to let go this notorious murderer. Which one do you think they chose? Obviously the murderer. Kill the author of life but let the murderer go. Kill the one who's trying to give life and let go the one, the guy that, that, that's taken innocent life. I mean, duh. And yet that's exactly what these people did. And literally in verse 15, the first part, he says, you killed the author of life. I mean, imagine what Peter's saying here. Again, put yourself in the mindset of a Jew when Peter said, you killed the author of life. In the Jew's mind, who was the author of life? Jehovah. Yahweh, God. And yet, he used this description to describe Jesus this way. He's like, you guys killed God. Wow. Now, was this really an appropriate title for Peter to use, to refer to to Jesus? I mean, absolutely. John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. I mean, it was clearly speaking of Jesus, and even more so in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities, and the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he even holds all of creation together. So it's not even that just Jesus was the creator of the world. He was even the creator of the angels everything 
And he's like, you killed that guy. But again, although this was a high crime these people committed, although they killed Jesus, look at the end of verse 15, but God raised him from the dead. And he says, and we're all witnesses of this fact. Now, I love what John MacArthur said about this. I, I I never really thought about this until this week when I read this. MacArthur said this, if Jesus was still dead, the fact that neither the Romans nor the religious leaders ever offered up his corpse to refute the claims of Peter and apostles is a pretty good evidence that what they were saying was true. I mean, think about that. That kept going around saying, this Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. If, if they didn't believe him, why didn't they just go to the tomb and grab his body? Well, because it wasn't there. Now, they could say, they obviously, they say, well, they, the disciples stole it. In fact, if you read the end of Matthew, the, the priest even paid off the, 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 the soldiers that were there to, to, to say that the, the disciples came and stole the body. They knew it, and yet they still refused to believe it. Now let's jump down to verse 17 for a moment and, and see just this incredible message of grace that Peter speaks to them. In verse 17 he says, Friends, I realize that, that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. Like as, as bad as the rejection of Jesus was, there was this reality that they did what they did because they genuinely were blinded to the truth. And many of these people, excuse me, many of these people genuinely were in their minds, defending God against heresy. Again, put yourself in the mindset of a first century Jew. The, the idea of a triune God was a heretical statement. No, there was one God. And yet you're saying Jesus is God? How can Jesus be God and God be God? And so this claim that Jesus was making even in his own life that before Abraham was, I am. I and my father are one. Many of the Jews were, I mean, it was like they were defending the honor of God against this heretical man claiming to be God. And yet, so the idea of Peter said, look, you, you guys did this in ignorance. You just didn't understand. Like, was Peter right about this? Well, Jesus said the same thing on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. These people truly did not understand what it is that they were actually doing. But now look where Peter goes with this in verse 18. He says, but God was willing, oh, excuse me, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. And so catch this, although they were responsible for murdering their Messiah, this was God's plan all along. It is hard to understand the balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And yet, it's everywhere in Scripture. There's a reality of both of these things being true. Like, there's no doubt that God declared that these things would take place. I mean, literally centuries before they happened, and even down to the smallest detail. Down to the smallest detail, it happened exactly how the prophets foretold, literally seven, eight centuries before this. The prophets spoke of him bearing stripes or being flogged, that he would be on a cross, that even, he'd even be buried in a rich man's tomb. I mean, these things were spoken, and so it was foreordained, and yet these people carried it out in real time. So although they were actually guilty of doing it, God saw it coming before it ever got there, literally centuries before. I love the way Warren Wearsby put this. He says, the cross was the meeting place of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Although God knew it was coming, although God had these, this, this plan, I mean, before the foundations of the world, God knew this was coming. And yet man was still responsible 
for their actions. Now, the bigger question is, why would God do this? Why would he allow his son to be tortured and killed? Well, to make what verse 19 says is possible. He said, verse 19, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. That never would have been possible without Christ coming. Without God sending the Son to go to the cross and die, be buried, rise again, without all that, verse 19 would not be possible. Yet because Christ did what he did, because God sent him, he made this idea of our sins being wiped away totally possible. Jesus did what he did so sinners could be forgiven and restored in the relationship with God. Now notice what Peter says here in that verse. He says, now repent of your sins, uh, as in plural. Not singular, right? And so the idea here was talking about complete forgiveness, meaning the forgiveness they were being offered wasn't like, well, if you repent, he'll forgive you of killing his son. But the rest of it, eh, we'll see. No, that's not what he says. He says literally so that all of your sins will be wiped away. I mean, how awesome is it that when a person comes to faith in Christ, like not one, not two, not the first 100, but literally every sin is wiped away. Cast as far as the east is from the west, as Psalm 103 and verse 12 tells us. The greatest transaction ever made was made at the cross. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. What an awesome thing. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, forgive us of our sins, and cleanse us of most of our unrighteousness. Is that what that verse says? No. Cleanses of all of our unrighteousness. This was the offer Peter gave here. But here's where it gets really interesting. Look at verse 20. He says here in verse 20, Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. That's a really interesting verse. So he offers them salvation, tells them to repent, and if they repent, and remember, he wasn't just speaking to a few people. We're going to see next week, the religious leaders were listening. And he says, if you'll you just repent, times of refreshment are going to come. Now, what does that mean? Well, I mean, when we got saved, was it a refreshing thing to have your sins forgiven? Was it a refreshing thing to um, have this, this newfound peace and joy within your life? Absolutely. But you know what's interesting? That's not what he was talking about here in context. What's, what he's talking about here, and this is so interesting, Peter connects Israel's turning to faith in Jesus with the return of Jesus. See, in theory, had all Israel pendant, repented of their unbelief and sin and turned to faith in Christ, Peter says that Jesus would have come. And like, I, I, I read a lot of commentaries, and they literally every commentary have all agrees on this point. That in theory, had the Jews as the nation as a whole came to faith in Christ in that moment, Jesus would have come back. Because Peter says the, the, the coming to faith of the, all of the Jews is connected with the return of Christ in his second coming. Super interesting. Now, obviously, we know that didn't happen. Um, there were certainly many who did believe in Christ, yet the vast majority of the Jews rejected him, and even though they were given every proof they needed, every chance they needed to repent and change, most of them refused. They, and they really had no excuse. Now, look what Peter brings up next. He brings up here the, some of the heroes of their faith to wake them up. Like in verse 22, he says here, 
Speaking of Moses, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Now, he's obviously using this context to tell these Jews that that man, that person that Moses was talking about, this prophet, is going to be... Now look at verse 24. He's like, starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. It's almost like if I was there, if, if he was, if I was there listening, Peter was like, have you read Isaiah? Have you read Jeremiah? Have you read Habakkuk or Amos or Joel or any of those? And guess who that was talking about? Jesus. All the prophets, starting with Samuel, were, were prophesying about Jesus as this Messiah. And he goes on in verse 25, he says, you're the children of those prophets. You're included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. Peter's looking at them. He's like, look, you guys are the people of God. Of all the people in the world, God chose you to pour out his blessings upon. He chose you as a nation to reveal himself to. In the second part of verse 25, he says, for, Abraham, for God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so if, if, if I was Peter, like if I was looking at that people, he's like, come on, put two and two together. Who was God speaking about about?" Who is going to be the blessing through Abraham? Who? Who was Moses talking about? Who were Samuel and the prophets talking about? What was this promise through Jesus? He's like, don't you see? It was Jesus. Jesus the Jew. Jesus the Israelite. Jesus the one from the line of Abraham. Jesus the descendant of King David. Jesus was the fulfillment to the promises of God through the prophets. All the teachings about Messiah were about him. That's where he was getting at as he was talking to these people. And so in so many words, it was like Peter was screaming out to these people, wake up and smell the roses. You need to realize who this was that you killed. Verse 26, he says, when God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. He's like, friends, God has given you another chance, so don't waste it. Turn to Jesus, believe in him, accept him as your true Savior. Now, consider the prophetic warning that he uses here from Moses in verses 22 and 23 again. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. And again, clearly he's speaking of Jesus. Now, look what he says here in verse 23. Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will what? Will be completely cut off from God's people. And so Peter here was being about as direct as he could possibly be. He was like, if you don't like what I'm saying to you, then listen to Moses. Listen to what he had to say. Moses said, when this prophet comes, if you don't listen to him, you're going to be cut off from God's people. He's like, friends, the one Moses was speaking of was Jesus, your Messiah, and your Lord, the one you rejected. And even though you rejected him in ignorance, God's mercy in this moment is telling you to turn to him in faith right now and give your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. I mean, this was the message of Peter to these people. Now, again, I'm, I'm just speculating. Now, remember this. What we, what we have in here especially like in this sermon, I, I, I would guess are probably just the high notes because I read that passage in about 30 seconds. <laughs> and so my guess is he was speaking to these people, right? And, and so my mind just kind of speculates, like, I wonder what this whole sermon was about. And, and here's, here's kind of what I was thinking. Again, this is just my thoughts clearly, so take it for what it's worth. But like, was Peter like, friends, I know the Messiah you were looking for was not this humble servant of God. 
I know the Messiah you weren't looking for was some common man from Nazareth. I know you were looking for a mighty warrior that, that would come to save you from this evil world. Look, I know that because that's exactly what I thought too at one time. Because he did. Peter and the apostles, that, that, they had a hard time accepting this too because they looked at Jesus that way. But friends, here's what I've come to understand. The reason Jesus came the first time was for a greater purpose than for our national freedom. He came to save us from a much more evil foe. He came to save us from Satan. He came to set us free from sin and from death. He came so that we could have true fellowship with God for eternity. In my mind, this is what some of the things that Peter might have been saying to these, saints, saying to these people in this moment. Because he was there. He, he was in their shoes at one point. He didn't get it either. And he's like, look, I was there. I get it. Wake up. Jesus is real. He is the Messiah. He is alive. He is Lord and he is coming again. But he says when he does understand that that Messiah you were looking at the first time, that you were looking for the first time, when he comes back, that's who he's coming back as. He's coming back to reign as king, as a warrior king. But he says for that to happen, you all need to repent and turn to him in faith today. And he says if you do this in verse 20, times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. Do you see the connection there? Of them coming to faith in Christ as a whole and Jesus returning? Well, that's not the only place we see this. I want to land on this kind of point in our remaining time together. What Peter was essentially saying was that the return of Jesus is, is connected to Israel as a whole, repenting and turning to Christ as Savior. Peter says here that the final restoration is directly tied to all Israel coming to faith in Christ. Now, as we think about that, if we think about the message that he spoke to these people, what was the result of it? Now, Next week, we're going to see many of these people came to Christ. Literally, probably a few thousand of them. We know there was 2,000 men. How many women and children, we don't know. But there were literally thousands of people that came to Christ in that moment. But here's what we also know. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And I want to read verses 7 and 8. Romans 11, 7 and 8. And keep your finger there. I'm going to read a couple more passages from there just to talk about this. Starting in verse 7 of Romans chapter 11, it says this. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have. The ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their eyes so they do not hear. See, because of their refusal to accept Christ as Messiah and Lord, God gave them over to their unbelief. Much like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, where he just refused time after time to heed the word of God, God hardened his heart, and that's exactly the same picture that he did to the nation of Israel. God gave them multiple chances to repent, multiple signs that Jesus was real and true, and yet they absolutely refused. And because of it, because of it, God hardened their heart. And because of it, essentially, it would seem that the return of Christ, at least in man's eyes, would have been delayed. Obviously not God's eyes, because God is sovereign. But here, here's what we know from history. But because Israel didn't repent, in AD 70, Jerusalem, the, the temple, was totally destroyed. A huge portion of God's people not only lost their lives, but they completely lost their nation. Because of their rejection and refusal, the, the Jewish nation ceased to be ceased to exist literally for almost 2,000 years. 
Now again, God is sovereign. He knew this was going to happen, as we're going to see the rest of the book of Acts, because the majority of the Jews rejected Jesus and, 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 and ran the Christians out of Jerusalem. The gospel essentially began to spread, first to Samaria, then to the Gentile world, and in this course of events set in motion the gospel message literally going out to all the nations. And the reason, really, the reason why we've had the chance in 2023 to accept Christ as our Savior is because the Jews rejected him 2,000 years ago. And so he made it possible for the Gentile worlds to be saved. Now, here's another question maybe we should ask. Is Israel a foregone conclusion? Like, since they rejected God, is it just their time's up, right? No. Listen to verses 11 and 12 of, of, of Romans chapter 11. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery, Paul asks? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. You see that? It was because of their disobedience that salvation was made available to the non-Jews. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because of the people of Israel turning down God's offer of salvation, how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it? And so the Apostle Paul says this, like, they turned down the gospel, and so all you Gentiles were able to get saved, and you received just an incredible blessing. But the gospel in its original intention was for the Jews. Even in Romans chapter 1, for the gospel is a power and salvation for those who believe, first for the who? Jew, and then for the Gentile, right? So the, the, the point kind of is this, if you've read, if you've read like the book of Isaiah, like the end chapters, or the book of Joel, the end chapters, the book of Ezekiel, the end chapters, and I'm not going to go on because many of them say this, there is a one common theme that there is going to be a day that the entire nation of Israel, the ones that are left, are going to come to faith in Christ. There's, that, that's, that's going to happen at some point. Whoever is left in the nation of Israel, there's going to be a day that every single one of them will be Christians. Like, are we sure? How do we know that? Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It says this, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel, specifically the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And listen to verse 34. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sin. That's coming someday. That's yet to happen. But there's coming the day that when all of Israel, every single Jew that is alive in the world, at one point in history, they are going to be completely and totally saved. Now, when is that going to happen? When Jesus is reigning on earth. When that takes place, Christ will be reigning as king. There's going to be justice and peace in the world. Evil and violence will no longer be allowed. The, the grotesque perversion and utter darkness that we see in our world today will be completely eradicated. Jesus will be on his throne. Not only is he king of Israel, but the king of the entire world. He will demand righteousness. He will demand justice upon the nations of the world. That's coming. Now, how does this all connect back to where we were at today? Look at verses 23 through 26 of Romans 11, then we'll connect it back to our text. Now, the context of this verse in, in Romans 11, 23 through 26, the Apostle Paul uses this 
illustration of an olive tree. If you picture an olive tree, the trunk represents the Lord. At one time, the branches all represented the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, if you will. And before this, he was talking about how some of the unbelieving people of Israel, that their, their branches were cut off and then they were cast aside. Now, verse 23, if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. He says, you by nature were a branch cut off from a wild olive tree. And so, he's speaking of the Gentiles there, or us, and so if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. And he says this in verse 25, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but... This will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ, and, and so all Israel will be saved. And as the Scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn, away them, turn them away from ungodliness. So, are, are you seeing the connection to what Peter said here in Acts? I, I hope you are, because what he says, th- this message he preached to them is like, if you would all just come to faith in Christ... You're besides coming back. They rejected it. And so God shifted the focus of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentile world. We're going to see this in the rest of the book of Acts. They were dispersed from Jerusalem, went to Samaria, and all around, and, and all kinds of non-Jews, a bunch of Gentiles, people like you and me, were saved. And for the last 2,000 years, the focus has been on the Gentile world. Although there's been Jews that's been saved, the main focus has been on the church, on the Gentile world. However, there is coming a day when that shift is going to come back to the nation of Israel. When is that going to happen? According to the Apostle Paul, when the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. There's going to be a day and a moment where the last person, the last non-Jew is going to be saved. And then from that point on, the shift focuses completely to the Jews. What's going to happen when it happens? Jesus will be reigning on earth. He's going to come back again. You know what's interesting? Today, the nation of Israel has been restored, certainly not to its former glory, but it is indeed a sovereign nation once again. And this reality alone should cause people to, to open their eyes and come to the reality that God's word is true. His promises never fail. He is coming again to restore his people. We need to accept this and make sure we're living a way that brings him glory. Now, when will this day come? When the final Gentile comes to faith in Christ, according to the Apostle Paul. Who is the last one? I don't know. Do you? I have no idea, but what I do know is this. Every time someone says no to Jesus, their heart gets a little bit harder. Like like a heart that is just slowly being turned to stone, piece by piece by piece by piece. That's the picture of what happened to Israel. They said no, 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 no. Every time they did, their heart got harder to a point where it was totally hardened to where they could no longer respond. Can I tell you something? People today have the same question placed in front of them as the Jews did when Peter spoke to them here in Acts 3. People today not only have the warnings of the prophets of old, we also have the warnings from the disciples, the warnings from the New Testament. We even have all of end times prophecy laid out before us that the reality of Christ is coming. The question is, what are people going to do with it? Will they repent of their sins and turn to faith in Christ, or will they instead ignore the call and continue in their unbelief? That, that really is the choice of all people. 
Just think about this. When Paul says, when the fullness of the Gentiles is over, right? Like when the last Gentile is saved. What does that tell you? It tells me when that happens, there will be no more non-Jews saved from that point on. You get what that means, right? So here's what I would say. Don't not be the last one. Are you hearing me? Don't not be the last one. Because every time a person says no to Christ, it gets harder and it'll become a point where it gets so hard you can no longer respond. Friends, I know we all have friends, we have family, we have neighbors that don't know Christ. Let it not be because we didn't tell them that they're not the last one either. Let's tell them. Let's tell them. Let them not go to hell because we didn't share the gospel. Romans 13 and verse 11 tells us this. This is all the more urgent for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Let's get serious. Let's get busy because what the apostle Peter says is true. If what the apostle Paul says is true, every time one person gets saved and there's millions of people getting saved all, I mean, all over the world and there's coming a day Every day that passes, we're one day closer to that last Gentile being saved. Don't not be the last one. And don't let your friends be either, or your family, or your loved ones. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this time. Thank you, God, for your patience with us, for your mercy, God, that sustains us. Lord, I know this message challenged me this week as I was thinking through it, and I pray this challenged all of us, Lord, to get busy, to get serious, to wake up. As Peter told these Jews to wake up and smell the roses, God, this week it really hit me that way. Just, man, there are other people, people perishing all around me, people dying every day that are, they're going to be separated you from all of eternity, Lord. And I just, I don't want my neighbors, my loved ones, my friends, I don't want them, I don't want any of them going to hell, God, because I didn't tell them, because I didn't tell them about you, because I was too fearful or whatever, too busy, too distracted. God, just, will you please just give us eyes to see, give us the boldness to speak when those opportunities arise, the boldness to act, God, when you call us to act. Father, we need you. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody in this place has never made a decision to follow you, God, I pray they would make that decision tonight that they would just trust in the fact that your son came, died, and rose again from the dead. And God, your word says that we confess with it of our mouth that he's Lord, believing in our heart that you raised it from the dead, we'll be saved. Father, I just pray that tonight, if anybody has never made that, whether it's somebody here, somebody listening to this, God, that they would, in this moment, just call out to you and ask for forgiveness, ask Jesus to come into their life to be their Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.